The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Hello, thanks for joining us again for another episode of The Other Side Podcast. I'm Scott Kirk here with Lucas Sullivan, and today joining us in studio, we have Columbus City Attorney Zach Klein, who was sworn in in 2018. Zach also served as the Columbus City Council President before becoming City Attorney. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's my first podcast. Couldn't think of a better place to be. Yeah, this yeah. is. we're going to just rock it out today. Or turn you off forever. One or this two. may be yes. one and done. My, my first and last <laughs> podcast. Yeah. I want to start, you know, I've covered you for a number of years now. One thing that's always fascinated me is, you know, you didn't come from, you didn't come from anything. You came from nothing. No, but I mean, you're you're not a Columbus blue blood. You're, there's no O in front of your name. There's no... There's no background here. You've kind of carved your own path. And I I just wonder, when did that start? Like, why Columbus? Where did you grow up? Well, I'm a graduate of Belpre High School, which is down on the river across from Parkersburg, West Virginia. Uh, So we got really excited when Parkersburg got an Outback Steakhouse because we were able to eat cheese fries after a football game on a Friday night. So that was really great for (laughs) us. Uh, But, you know, went to uh, Ohio State and Capital Law School. And then that's really where I started my time in the city of Columbus. I did spend... uh, uh, sometime in Washington, D.C., working for Vice President Biden at the White House uh, in 2009. But my wife's a shoe buyer at DSW. And when I got that call uh, to go work in Washington, I said, you know, Jenny, my wife's name, I said, Jenny, I got this wonderful opportunity to go work at the White House. She said, go knock your socks off, but I'm not giving up buying shoes for a living. So I, I uh, flew back and forth every weekend for a year. And after a year, that was personally and financially taxing to make taint in that commute. But I uh, came back and, uh, you know, worked for Rich Cordray as an assistant attorney general. Also was a special assistant U.S. attorney, uh, cross-designated there when I was working for Rich and, and helped prosecute white-collar criminal crime. And then when Rich lost in 2010, that's when I joined uh, the city council in 2011. And I ran in November 2011, ran in November 2015. I uh, eventually did become the council president. And then when my predecessor, Rick Pfeiffer, retired uh, and announced that he wasn't going to seek re-election is when I uh, sought the city attorney seat, which I've, I've been for almost two and a half years. But, but back when you were in law school, was was politics going to be it? Like, you know, you don't have to get a law degree to, to be in politics, to run for office. Absolutely not. You certainly don't need a law degree for that. Um I came from a family where we really didn't talk much about politics. Uh, growing up, I, I didn't really think much of whether I was a Republican or a Democrat, but I did come from a family where my parents volunteered and raised their hand for everything. Uh, they were uh, always present at our athletic events, You know, whether it was selling tickets at the door for the 50-50 or selling tickets at the door for the shoot the hoop, which is you know you split the pot if you make a half-court shot. You guys shot. are a big basketball family? We're a big basketball family. My dad's 6'7", my mom's 6 foot, I'm 6'5", my brother's 6'4". We've seen a couple basketball games in our life. <laughs> now, were you always freakishly tall? I was. I, I wouldn't describe it as freakish, <laughs> just from just from my own psychological. But I mean, were you that were you that kid in sixth grade where everybody was like? I feel like sixth grade was the moment where you walked into Foot Locker and you didn't say, "Oh, I love those shoes." You just went to the counter and said, "What do you have in 13s? Oh, uh, gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Community service was something that was really important to me, and I think that's really what shaped, really important to my family, which is what I think shaped my drive and wanting to give back to my community. And not that you have to be involved in elected politics to do that, but I just I thought this is something that I wanted to do, and I've been very fortunate to have the opportunities to do that. Belpre is a small town, about five thousand people, and has a lot of you know a lot of issues that you find in rural Ohio. It's not an outlier in Belpre compared to the issues that are being, you know, people are dealing with up and down the river. It's a wonderful community. Uh, I wouldn't hesitate ever to raise my kids there. Uh, it's, a, it's a good group of people. 
Uh, and that's what's that's what's beautiful about growing up in a small town is that um, everyone is is friendly that you you feel like you know everyone even though you may only recognize their face uh, because it, it there is a significant sense of community and and I think you know as uh, as our politics continues to devolve that we have to keep in mind uh, that there's a lot more commonalities between the people in Belpre as there are people here in the city of Columbus but so what attracted you to to the big city you know why not just stay in Belpre well, there were, there were a lot of opportunities here when I graduated law school. You know, I ended up clerking for a couple of federal judges. Uh, you know, I met uh, with Rich Cordray and was able to get involved in politics. I, I, I met my now wife. Uh, she's from Columbus, born and raised from Reynoldsburg, went to Bishop Hartley High School. Um, so there were a lot of factors that, you know, sucked me into the Columbus vortex that made me now a longtime Columbus resident. I kind of forged my own way here. Uh, there was a council vacancy, actually two council vacancies uh, in, I guess, December of 2010, uh, you know, 50 or 60 people applied for those. I was one of the two people fortunate enough to get picked. And I think a lot of folks would say, who was, who is this Zach Klein guy that just randomly came out of nowhere? You know, okay. so I'm, I think I'm an example of someone that did come out of nowhere uh, and worked hard, uh, was able to you know, earn the vote of supporters in 2011, 2015. And then as city attorney, you know, I won with over 70% of the vote. Uh, so I, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity. This is a community, I think, that does work well together, though. And I think that's, if anything, in the city of Columbus, we have so many great things going for us. Uh, and uh, whether it's, you know, a strong economy and lots of job opportunities and you know, we're also not without our weaknesses too. We have plenty of weaknesses in our in our community that we need to address. But it's how we work together to address them that I think is the secret sauce of the city of Columbus. Now we, I think, jokingly or you know, flippantly call it the Columbus way, which is kind of I think is an overused term, but nevertheless, it does have some truth to it. Uh, and the Columbus way is that you know, elected officials, business community, labor leaders, faith community, uh, neighborhood groups, we're not afraid to all sit in the room together, roll up our sleeves, and try to tackle big issues. And you know, working around the state and seeing uh, seeing how other cities operate. I would say Columbus is unique in that way. Uh, and I think that gives us uh, an edge because we're not afraid to work with one another. And when you think about politics being broken, whether it's um, people listening to this podcast, maybe in a different city in the United States or even in Ohio, they may not think that's what their local elected officials do. We certainly don't see it at the federal level uh, and we rarely see it at the state level. So I think there has to be a sense of camaraderie and collegiality uh, and every day can't be election day uh, where we are able to to work together to all solve right, issues. All right. Okay. All right. You, 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 talk, you mentioned some issues. I know one thing that you been passionate about here since you became city attorney is some bond reform and and you feel that there are too many people kept in jail for too long for things that maybe they shouldn't be and i I wanted to give you an opportunity to to explain your stance on this um, because you know bond reform can be controversial you're talking about letting uh, criminals out of jail and and not having them innocent people Okay. Uh, right, right. All right. And All right. So, proven guilty. So, so talk about why this has become an issue for you. Well, let me say generally, um, one of the prongs that I have uh, in buckets that I focus on as the city attorney is uh, the prosecutor. Like we are the prosecutor uh, for the city of Columbus for all misdemeanors and traffic violations. So if you look at the 120,000 cases that my office does, uh, that's everything from traffic all the way up to domestic violence. Something as very serious as as domestic violence. Uh, So it's in that realm um, where we have, uh, you know, a, a number of prosecutors and support staff. Uh, that, that do those prosecutions, and I start. I start from the premise uh, that the criminal justice system is absolutely broken. Uh, there are very few metrics 
uh, that show the way we do things in the United States is actual an effective way of tackling criminal justice and community safety. Uh, um, safety. Like, if, for example, a very common statistics, we have 5% of the world's population, yet we have 25% of the world's incarcerated individuals. Uh, and when you look at our crime rates in the United States compared to the rest of the civilized world, um, you know, we're, we're no less dangerous or no more safe than anywhere else in the rest of the civilized world, with the exception, if you put a footnote there, probably of gun violence, uh, where we are just off the charts. But, but pro- uh, prosecutors in your position don't impose sentences. That, that's left to judges. So... Uh, what 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 can you really do as a prosecutor to to get at this problem when ultimately it's not in your hands to make the call? Well, prosecutors have a very important role, and you brought up bail reform, for example. So one of the things that we're doing in uh, the bail space uh, is uh, we've created a policy that absent unique circumstances, uh, we do not ask for cash bail for nonviolent misdemeanors. Uh, so these are nonviolent misdemeanor crimes uh, that we don't believe that the amount of money in your pocket should be determinative of whether you get out of jail awaiting to be um, wait, awaiting trial because you are innocent until proven guilty. So you're talking like traffic crimes, OVI, stuff like that. Big box shoplifting. You know, look, there could be a whole host of misdemeanor crimes uh, in addition to traffic uh, that are nonviolent in nature. Uh, and, in, and if you don't have uh, some sort of criminal record or you ha- even if you have a criminal record uh, to where it's nonviolent crimes and you have evidence of you've, you've always shown up to your court date, then why are we arbitrarily just assigning a mon- monetary value to that to make sure that you show up to court? Uh, you know, that's why we, we, we leave room to say absent unique circumstances. Obviously, if you have a significant criminal history and you have several failure to appears and you don't like showing up to court, that is the appropriate use of bail. Uh, but if you don't have any evidence of that in your background, then why are we just arbitrarily saying, hey, you have to do $500 cash surety bond if you're going to show to make sure that you show up when your track record proves otherwise or you've committed a nonviolent offense and you're not really uh, a, a violent threat to society. And that's just one bail reform is just one example, I think, of, of a role a prosecutor can play in influencing a decision, because even then it's the judge's call of whether to accept our recommendation or not. But obviously the prosecutor's recommendation can be very important uh, and you're right, Lucas, to point out uh, the fact that sentencing is ultimately the call of the judge. Uh, but prosecutors play uh, a very significant um, play a very significant influential role in how those sentences are crafted. Because you know, ninety some percent of the cases are actually plea bargained, and it's plea bargained in agreement with the defense counsel and the prosecutor making a recommendation to the judge. So prosecutors do play uh, a role. And you know, another example of of what we've done um, from a policy perspective, because this is something within our unique authority as prosecutors to do so, uh, is in um, over the summer made the unilateral call that we're no longer going to prosecute misdemeanor marijuana cases in the city of Columbus. Um, That doesn't mean that marijuana is not still illegal because the Ohio Revised Code still makes it a crime. Uh, police can still use probable cause uh, to pull, to search someone incident if they believe that they, they possess marijuana because it is still a crime. It's just we have made the decision for a whole host of factors uh, ranging from uh, the hemp versus marijuana distinction that recently happened in the state of Ohio for the for farmers to be able to grow hemp, uh, ranging from that all the way down to just social justice concerns and the way marijuana uh, convictions have disproportionately impacted people of color versus white folks. We've made uh, the determination that we are no longer going to prosecute misdemeanor marijuana in the city of Columbus. And that's completely within my call as the prosecutor to do so. Actually, glad you brought that up, Zach. The um, Ohio Attorney General, Dave Yost, responded to your policy, and I'll just quickly read basically what he said quote it's unfortunate that columbus has decided to create an island within franklin county where their general laws of the state of ohio no longer apply 
What's your response to that? Well, I appreciate Attorney General Yost's comment. Um, We're going to make the best decision that we believe are in the interest of the city of Columbus and the citizens of the city of Columbus. And this decision was not made in a vacuum. The reality is uh, two things. The first is when you read that uh, article that that, um, Attorney General Yost quote was in, uh, it goes on to say that... uh, Attorney General Yost's guidance to other county prosecutors was very similar to the guidance that I gave. So on the one hand, he was kind of bad-mouthing me and saying, I'm creating a lull, an island of lawlessness. But on the other hand, he's saying, by the way, state of Ohio, you should basically do what the city of Columbus is doing. Because the second point is, uh, there's no testing that's available to actually make this distinction. Um, so what happened in the state of Ohio um, is, you know, farmers are getting crushed by Trump's trade policies. Uh, I think the legislature rightfully recognizes that farmers should be able to have different commodities to grow, including hemp. So they have to make this hemp versus marijuana distinction. Well, what is the distinction? Historically, it's been, hey, if this has any presence of THC, it's marijuana. Well, in order to make the distinction between hemp, they had to somehow say an amount of THC makes it a marijuana. So in the state of Ohio, they said 0.3%. They said if it's 0.3% or less, it's hemp. If it's 0.3% THC, it's more, it's marijuana. The problem with that uh, is that the, the testing only detects the presence of THC. So it doesn't detect, detect the amount. So you're, you you have this legislative change, but no technology that can actually do the testing to determine whether it's hemp versus marijuana. Um, so now testing, I think, is becoming more online in the state of Ohio. But in talking with uh, Chief Quinlan, uh, acting chief at the time, now Chief Quinlan, uh, you know, it cost a quarter million dollars to buy a piece of equipment to determine whether it's 0.3% greater THC or 0.3% less THC. That's a quarter million dollars that, in my opinion, in talking with Chief Quinlan, can be invested somewhere else for community safety, especially against the backdrop of what our Columbus City Council did was essentially make it a a, monet- a small monetary fine in the city of Columbus to have a possession anyway. So you have like a 10 or $15 fine to make an investment for a quarter million dollars. Doesn't make any sense. So one thing that has been in the news a lot in this city for the last couple of years is the relationship between police and the black community. And uh, I know you've you know, you've been in the room when protesters have stormed council chambers. You've um, watched them march down High Street. You've held press conferences with them. Um, Sometimes you've embraced them. But nonetheless, the relationship is it has not gotten any better, uh, at least the protesters would say. And I wonder what you feel your role is as city attorney. Um, to help bridge that gap because, you know, you're not presenting these cases uh, when there's an officer involved shooting. You're not presenting those cases to a grand jury. That's the county prosecutor. But I'm wondering what your role is, what you feel your role is in this arena. Well, I I think there's um, my charter duties and then there's my community duties. Uh, And it's, it's unique that this that I'm an independently elected office holder. Uh, the city attorney in most cities across Ohio and across the United States are appointed by the mayor and or the council. So so San Diego, Los Angeles, Seattle, and Columbus are probably the four largest cities in the United States uh, that have an independently elected city attorney. Okay. And I bring that up uh, because it's an interesting dynamic between who my client is based on my charter duties of the city of Columbus because my client is the city. And that's the mayor, the council, all the departments, mm-hmm. all 9,000 employees uh, versus who my boss is. And my boss is the community. So I have, I think, two roles that I play as the Columbus City Attorney. My clear charter duties in my, in my role to my client is the police legal advisor. Um, so we, we advise them on the contours of constitutional law, on appropriate searches, um, 
and make sure that we offer from a legal perspective what the, what the contours and the law of the Constitution of the state of Ohio and the United States are so that they can do their jobs legally, so they have the legal tools that are necessary uh, to do their jobs. But I also have a com- community component, and it's in that community space that I think we balance between my job of, of being the lawyer for the police uh, and my role as a community advocate and making sure that uh, we bridge the gap and we try to do our part to mend the important mending that needs to be done between uh, people of color uh, and the uh, division of police. This is not something that's unique to the city of Columbus. Every community has this problem. Um, I I will say I think our police officers do a a wonderful job. We have really good police officers in the city of Columbus. Uh, That doesn't mean there's not a lot of room for improvement for them to to bridge that gap. And I, I think as we get officers more out of their cars and cruisers and on the streets uh, to actually interact with folks, that helps that helps bridge that gap. But you're right, Lucas, uh, in the sense that I've seen protests when I was council president, when people have stormed council, um, complaining at the time about the community safety initiative, or I've seen more recently some of the protests um, in regards to police-involved shootings, uh, and now those protests, those individuals may have gotten arrested, or, and I'm now the prosecutor on the case, uh, is like, how do we then use my office as a way to to uh, help not only um, bridge that gap, but also how do we use my office as a way to amend and do what's right for the community? And that's that's the people, the individuals, the, the people who are aggrieved, as well as the division of police or the client. And one of those things that I think that uh, was was eye opening to me, and I, I, I assume your office still does this. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I know your predecessor did, is that when there's an issue such as a lawsuit and you have to settle that lawsuit um, or navigate whether to take you know that lawsuit to to trial or not you you have conversations your office has conversations there's a liaison between your office and a police department and there are conversations that happen about how to maybe do this better in the future about how this plays out in the community basically having a conversation with officers in a room those those do the, do you have those, does your office have those conversations with police? Absolutely, on a weekly basis. Uh, and this is this is really tough for me to talk about, uh, not in the sense of an emotional way, but from just a, a pragmatic way, because it is that attorney-client privilege of my role as, as the city attorney, and I do love my law license, and I don't want to lose it, and they are my client. So I, I never want to be the elected official that says, well, you just got to trust me. I can't tell you what I'm talking about because I know what that sounds like, and it, it should sound suspect, and people should think that it's suspect. But I will say um, that we are in those conversations on a weekly basis through our – we have actually two police officers – I'm sorry, we have two lawyers who are the liaisons from my office to the division of police who interact literally every single moment of the day unless they're sleeping with the division of police Um, but when it comes to um, actions whether they've involved lawsuits or not or they involve lawsuits uh, we're always working with the division of police and providing our guidance not only legally but also uh, my view as as being the lawyer is not only here's the legal answer but here's also counseling you on how we can solve this moving forward one of the uh initiatives that's important to you at least according to the city attorney's website is promoting social justice reform i want to ask you how are you promoting it and what does social justice reform look like to you well i think the biggest way that we can do it and influence it is through the criminal justice realm because that's something we have direct control over um so whether it's um changing the bail policy to get rid of cash bail for nonviolent misdemeanors uh or it's uh not prosecuting 
misdemeanor marijuana possession. Uh, you know, another thing that we've done is uh, we have created a um, the first of its kind diversion program uh, in the United States, the first of its kind in the United States uh, that you know looks at drug addiction and mental health. Uh, but a lot of diversion programs do that. But we go, or what makes ours unique is we go a step further. Uh, and so we look at drug addiction and mental health. Uh, but we also ask it, the questions of like, what's like, why are you stealing? Is it because of food insecurity, housing insecurity, transportation issues, economic issues? And, and part of your diversion program, for example, if, if you're stealing and, and, and you, you have identified as a reason for, for, for stealing, um, a hunger issue, then part of your diversion is getting lined up with the community resource and visiting your local food pantry. Now, it may seem like a novel concept. For me, it's common sense. And that's the problem with the criminal justice system is that over the past decades, it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That has been the criminal justice system. And we're wondering why the same people are coming through the system uh, over and over again as repeat offenders, because we're not taking a step back and asking the reason why. Why is this person in court right now uh, before before the court? Why are we prosecuting them? So if we take the step back and we identify and treat the root reasons of crime, uh, then I think that gives us an opportunity to actually make our community safer. So when in the process is this assessment made? We're piloting this, and it's about eight months old. Uh, we're piloting this with big box shoplifting. So your Lowe's, your Home Depot's, Kroger's, Giant Eagles of the world. Um, and what we have done is we've partnered with a third-party health care organization um, that has come in uh, and that we we identify folks who are who are eligible. And the eligibility is it's not your first offense because we already have a program for that. It's also not your 10th, 11th, 12th offense uh, uh, because there's been a lot of evidence that those folks actually could be involved in like larger theft rings of stealing merchandise from those stores. So it's the tweeners, you know, your second through eighth and eighth or so offense. So we partner with this third party healthcare organization. It's actually right at arraignment. So before you even enter a, a plea, we put you on an inactive docket and we, we ask this healthcare organization to come in and they give you a 36 question questionnaire. Mm-hmm. You fill it out in conjunction with your public defender and the healthcare organization. We as prosecutors um, intentionally distance ourselves from that so that the defendant feels like he or she can answer the questions honestly. Once we get, once they get that answer back, they meaning the, the, the third-party healthcare organization, they present a, diver, a, a, a tailored plan as part of that individual's diversion to us. We keep a laissez-faire, hands-off uh, distance from this and let the let the third party health care organization run it now we will check in to say is is so and so you know showing up at their food pantry is so and so meeting the person at this community organization or whatever the reasons they're stealing as long as they're they're making efforts to and, and to making strides to tackle those problems and again getting at those root reasons and trying to cure those root reasons then after six months which is how long our jurisdiction can be in a situation like this we, we ultimately say hey third party health care organization did this person hit the checklist and if the answer is yes we dismiss the case and we actually seal the charge so it's a dismissal and a seal uh, with the hopes of affecting recidivism rates in a way we can make our community safer because the chances are on these big box shoplifting cases it's on closed circuit television individuals are typically caught with the merchandise on them it's very easy to convict them but what's the purpose of that conviction if we're not treating the reasons why they're stealing? Because they're just going to go out and steal again. Right. It's the same thing with folks. And again, it's happened to me. People break into your car to steal change, maybe because the feed a drug habit for, or for whatever the reason they, they did. You know, if we don't take a step back and treat the underlying reasons why people are committing the conduct that they're doing, then of course they're going to continue to commit the conduct. We have to be able to separate the reasons of crime and treat those 
treat those reasons if we ultimately want to make our community safer. Now, that's the safety component and why this program is important. There's a whole workforce development economic opportunity that I think we have not talked enough about in the criminal justice system of the whole swaths of victims, defendants, families that are have historically been or currently are involved in the criminal justice system. And how do we use the criminal justice system as a way to lift them up and provide them with the tools they need so they can be productive members of society, get a job, pay taxes, be the moms and dads they want to be uh, instead of turning our back on them and always using the criminal justice system as a stick, you know. That doesn't mean that there aren't bad people that deserve to go to jail and go to prison for a very long time. And I'd be the first to advocate for long sentences for rapists, murders, robbers, human traffickers, domestic violence abusers. Um, But those are a small percentage of the cases when you look at the overall, especially in municipal court, of the individuals that come through who, because of life circumstances, they just need help. And it's a fine balance between us and the role as a prosecutor to dispense and, and ensure justice and making sure we're not a social worker. But I think in the 21st century, and I think the future of criminal justice is a hybrid of the two, um, that we don't have to be social workers, uh, but I think we have to have a social mind and understand that there's an impact on the way we can improve community safety. Because if my job as a prosecutor is ultimately to make sure justice is served and make sure our community is safer, then we have to do the things that I'm advocating for. Otherwise, we're doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. Crime will continue to happen, and then we'll scratch our heads and say, I can't believe that person's continuing to steal to feed their drug addiction. Well, of course they are. You have to get to the root reason of crime if we're going to make our community safer. So... On social issues, recently, you know, there's been there's been protests in the news. Happened at the Martin Luther King breakfast. Um, yeah, I know you weren't in town for that. You, I think you 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 got a phone call shortly thereafter. But nonetheless, this ended up in your lap because you're off. These are going to be misdemeanor charges. Your office has to deal with those. The Columbus Freedom Coalition folks, uh, you know, have been um, outspoken about that they feel the the charges should be dropped against those people who were just trying to peacefully, they say, I I don't know where you fall on it, get their message across. And I'm wondering where you're at with with the charges for those folks that were arrested the morning at that breakfast. Well, the case is, is, is ongoing. I've received uh, correspondences from various groups about dismissing the charges, and I, uh, I appreciate everyone's input uh, and respect everyone's position, and I take all, those, all that input very seriously. You know, I, I think it comes down to kind of the next, the next kind of conversation evolution of what we're having of the criminal justice system um, is, does every case have to end up in a conviction? Does that mean that justice is served as long as we get a conviction or someone serves jail time? I, I would answer that many cases deserve to end up in a conviction, and, and there are cases and instances where people deserve to go to jail or prison. Uh, But I also would contend that not every case needs to have a conviction in order for justice to be served. Uh, And and when you look at some of these protest cases, uh, we've had a series of them since I've been city attorney. You've highlighted probably the most recent Mm high-profile one. We've had a series of them. We try to figure out ways. We try to figure out ways of trying to make sure justice is served, but also understand that there's a community aspect of trying to do the right thing. Uh, and this case is no different, and we're working with our defense counsel as we speak to try to figure out a fair resolution for the community. Does uh, it make it harder that you weren't there, that you didn't witness it? We have 120,000 cases a year, so I don't witness all 120,000. So okay. I, I don't think that has a factor but, at all. But I'm saying as someone who's been subjected to protests, is it something that in order to fully understand it, you have to witness it? I don't think so. I think I think whether it's this or other, other examples in our community uh, – 
for one, most of it's caught on video, whether it's cell phone or police body worn camera. Uh, and secondly, uh, there's a sense of, of empathy that I think that you could step in the shoes of protesters who feel like they're aggrieved. Um, and whether you ag- agree with um, their protest position or not, um, you know that they're very passionate about it. Um, and I, I think that that perspective is one that just as a human being, you can have that you have that opinion that you understand that these people uh, who are protesting in this instance, these two individuals um, are folks that care deeply about the issue that they're protesting. Whether I think that that is a legitimate protest or not, or like a cause is irrelevant. It's more of like, what's the right thing to do for the community? And frankly, for the division of police, what's the right resolution for the division of police? And because there's an air quote victim involved in that instance, being the Martin Luther King Day breakfast uh, and and its organizers, like making sure that they're brought into speed and have have an opinion on how this uh, should be disposed of as well. So is there politics involved for you on this? Absolutely not. No. You don't weigh any of that. Uh, On these cases, I simply just try to do the right thing. And sometimes that'll make a lot of people happy, and sometimes it'll piss off a lot of people. How do you feel about protesting in general? I think everyone has a right to protest. Uh, You know, the Martin Luther King Day breakfast. Do you think that elected officials have an obligation to, at some point, sit down with them and hear them out? I think that depends on the issue. Uh, I think it depends on it depends on the issue, and I think it also depends on that particular elected official. I don't think it's up for me to decide whether one elected official should meet with a group or not. That's for that individual to decide. I don't think it's fair for me to weigh in. Switching gears real quick, you ran for a county prosecutor against a prosecutor that had been here for a long time, still is here. Um, you didn't win, obviously. Immediately after you were sworn in, you took some swings at President Trump with some of the things that he was doing and some of the things that kind of flew in the face of what you were trying to do. And I'm wondering, what is it What is it in you that makes you, you have no problem punching back against these guys. And I'm wondering, why do you think that is that you have no problem trying to engage in this when other people would just be like, you know, I'm just going to keep my head down. And But you, you kind of face that stuff head on. Why? I got into politics to make a difference. Um, I want to improve people's lives. I'm not a perfect person. There are things that I do that that people may think is wrong, uh, but I come at it honestly from my own moral compass of like, I want to do the right thing. Uh, And when I see that there's an injustice or things could be done better, obviously there's lots of injustices in the world and I can't weigh in on every single issue. Um, But on the, on the issues as it relates to the president or even being critical of Rob Portman and some of the lack of decision-making that he's had in the United States Senate um, to, to help president Trump, those are severe. um, Those are severe injustices that need to be called out and dealt with. And I think that we as a society need to stand up and continue to embrace one another to identify and tackle those injustices um, because, you know, an injustice somewhere is an injustice everywhere. Well, Zach, so I know that you advocate for rehabilitation for misdemeanor drug offenses. So my question is pretty simple. Have you always felt that way or did that change because the faces of the, the people caught up in the epidemic changed? So a drug addiction's not new, right? right. It, it's it's plagued uh, communities of color and and rural America for decades, uh, and that no one really cared about it or thought twice of it until it became a suburban problem, uh, which I think is what you're getting at. Which is, a, I think, yes. a very fair statement, and, and anyone who's paid attention over the past five or ten years would recognize that no one really uh, cared about drug addiction until it affected people of influence. And and and, and just, if it was, it, it was about incarceration punishment the war on drugs has been an absolute failure and we're now reaping the negativity of the mass incarceration problem because of the war on drugs so i start from the premise that you know 
we have dealt with addiction in this country and it's been largely ignored uh, for decades. Uh, and now because of opioids, uh, folks are trying you know, have taken a step back and have said to them, well, this addiction thing's real. You know, it's affected my cousin in Dublin or my friend in Grove City. From my perspective, it's how do we take the lessons from our past where we have turned our back on people of color and in rural America um, who have suffered through meth and crack cocaine uh, and the epidemic that's plagued plagued those communities that they're still reeling with today. Uh, And how do we build not an opioid model because opioids are what's affecting suburban affluent folks and their family members, but how do we build a drug addiction model? Because the drug of the choice is going to change. As a matter of fact, you look at some of the statistics now, opioids have moved away from white folks and are now affecting more black folk. Um, So the drug system is going to change based on just pure economics. We would be failing ourselves as a society just just to say we're only going to do an opioid-based response. We need to take this lesson of addiction as a a brain disease. Uh, It is something that people um, can't control. They need help with with, uh, medical uh, professionals. And we need to build a model that addresses drug addiction generally so that moving forward, regardless of whatever the drug of the day is, we've already seen rises of methamphetamine coming back. Whatever the drug of the day is, we have the resources for all walks of life. Whether you are in the inner city or you're in the suburbs or you're in the or in rural America, that you have the resources that are necessary to tackle this. And I will say that I have spent a lot of time thinking about this over the past probably four or five years because I did run for county prosecutor. Uh, and this is something that, you know, you obviously think about when you're going to run for the top prosecutor job in the largest county in the state of Ohio. Um Obviously, I did not win that race, but even transitioning as from council president to the city attorney is something that we do deal with, uh, you know, the aftermath and effects of addiction. So I don't want to con- consider myself a Johnny come lately um, on this issue, uh, but it is something that since I have put on a more active prosecutor role for running for prosecutor, that I think is a common sense approach of trying to build a system that uh, that deals with drug addiction generally. And again, gets at the root reasons of crime, whether it's addiction or poverty. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've done, because just real quickly about poverty, is that we see every day the intersection of poverty and the criminal justice system, not just with defendants, but their families, their victims, and people that come through uh, the courthouse. I'm, I'm a firm believer that criminal justice reform doesn't have to solely take place within the four corners of the courthouse, which is why my office has partnered with the United Way um, for uh, the tax time preparation. Now, this this is a, a tax time preparation service that's free uh, to the public for folks that are eligible for the earned income tax credit. This is free cash money that is owed to individuals in our community, literally millions and millions of dollars that's eligible for all the people in our community based on federal tax law. So this is not something that's made up. This is something in the IRS code um, that helps people who work jobs to make ends meet, minimum wage jobs, maybe work two, two jobs who are young, who are old, who are students, who are moms, who are dads, get them the money that they need to put into their pockets. This is just one way, I think, from a community mm. uh, aspect that my office can actively try to change the trajectory of the criminal justice system. It's being involved in the community and helping the United Way with the earned income tax credit because people have worked hard and deserve this money gives them a chance to provide for their family. And then once we get into the courtroom, it's doing things like affecting the bail system, making decisions on marijuana prosecution. You got them going now. Look, uh, sorry, looking at the diversion program. Now. And then, you know, working working uh, bipartisanly on uh, this, on Senate Bill 3, 
uh, which is a drug sentencing overhaul for the state of Ohio that, with the exception of fentanyl and date rape drugs, moves low-level drug possession down to a misdemeanor, um, an unclassified misdemeanor, and away from a felony conviction. Uh, because that is the focus. If we're gonna, if we're gonna, to your point, Scott, if we're going to uh, look at the effects of addiction and and what it has done to like the crack academic or methamphetamine in rural America that we have to understand there's a big difference between the user and the trafficker. The user needs help. The trafficker needs punished. Uh, And so how do we give the help and not have to wrap a felony conviction around someone and then have the collateral consequences of housing, of employment, of trying to, to pull yourselves up from your bootstraps, but you give someone a felony, you've taken off their boots. Now, that's not to say that there aren't, again, bad people that deserve to be labeled felony. Right. But how do we think differently about the war on drugs, knowing that the war on drugs was a complete failure? It's led to mass incarceration. It's ruined neighborhoods, destroyed families. We really appreciate it. You're welcome to come back anytime. I would love that. This is great. It's uh, It's been a great experience, and I hope I can come back on. Thank you. For everybody else out there, thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, we love to hear from our listeners. So check us out on our Facebook page at Facebook slash group slash Other Side Podcast. And you can always hit us up on Twitter at Other Side underscore P-O-D. Uh, and there you'll find a bunch of old episodes, photos, and extras that you'll be sure to enjoy. So <laughs> until then, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Thanks.